Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Tabitha. Um, my name's Naomi, um, and I'm a member of the church here. Oh, that's going to fall off, isn't it? There we go. Uh, and in my front line, I teach some secondary English and dabble in a little bit of leadership and a little bit of research. Um, and I'd like us to think together this morning, though, about where we're looking, where our attention is, where our focus is, where we choose to direct our eyes in the poetic form, by which, of course, we mean our minds, our hearts, our thoughts. And to help us, I'd like us to fully immerse ourselves, pun fully intended, in Peter's experience this morning. In the NIV, this section of Matthew 14, which you might find it helpful to have in front of you as we go through, is entitled, Jesus Walks on the Water. Now, I don't for a second want to suggest that it isn't vitally important and theologically central that Jesus walks on the water. But if you were reading Matthew's Gospel with me for the first time, and I shut the book after the feeding of the 5,000 and said, now, somebody's going to walk on the water. Who do you think it might be? Hopefully, unless you were a very precocious child in my year 11 class, you would think about the person who just calmed the storm, healed the blind and the lame, cast out the demons, healed the sick, and fed the 5,000. And you'd say, Jesus. And of course, you would be correct. But I think... The surprise in this story isn't that Jesus walks on the water, therefore. It's that Peter does. The disciple without the money, without the education, without the power, is the person who looks at Jesus and can walk on the water. And we're going to take quite slow steps this morning through this story from his perspective, see it through his eyes, and consider how we, as followers of Jesus just like he was, can learn the lessons he learned and can keep our focus on him. Now, the bishop and theologian N.T. Wright sums up this passage in this way. He says, This story, Peter walking on the water, can be read as a picture of the life of faith, or rather, the life of half-faith, faith mixed with fear and doubt, which is the typical state of so many Christians as it was with the disciples. And I wonder if that resonates with you as it does with me at the start of 2002, in the midst of another wave, again pun intended, of another variant. Are you one of the many Christians feeling that mixture of faith, fear, and doubt? And as we see this story through Peter's eyes, I hope his experience will encourage you challenge you and give you ways to go forward and keep walking into 2022. So if we're going to put ourselves in Peter's position, we need to think about the kind of day he's had. Our experiences, our life, our challenges don't happen in a vacuum. They are affected by our mood, the news, what's happened at work, what our child has just said to us, what our partner has just said to us, what's just gone on. And Peter has had a very long emotional roller coaster of a day. The day started with what I've called horrific, frightening news. If we look back at the start of Matthew 14, the day started with the news coming to Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist's execution. 
I think it's safe to assume the disciples got that news as well, since John's disciples brought it. They will have talked together about it. They try to all withdraw and go somewhere quiet to process that news, to deal with that grief together. But they can't. The pressures of Jesus' ministry, their work, if you like, come in. Then, they're up on the mountainside. John tells us this. Matthew doesn't need to because his readers would have known where they were talking about. They're dealing with their unprocessed grief. The disciples go into full managing the crowd mode, bringing the sick to Jesus, etc., etc. And then there's the worry. It's the end of the day. We're hungry. They must be hungry. What are we going to do? And then there's the miraculous provision, the feeding of the 5,000. Then Jesus immediately sends the disciples off. So 12 men in a boat are dealing with their unprocessed grief, the exhilaration of having just witnessed the feeding of the 5,000, and then the storm. So I think it's safe to assume that we've got fear, we've got grief, we've got the exhilaration, and also the exhaustion. We all know we can't process our emotions after a particularly long, challenging day, especially not in a boat with the wind against us, buffeted by the waves. And that's where we start this particular story. That's where Peter is at this point. So even before we get to the storm and the walking on the water, he's in the middle of an emotional storm, often as we are. When we see this as a picture of our lives and of our faith, as N.T. Wright pointed out it is, let's acknowledge that often we're in the middle of an emotional storm when things happen to us too. So there we are. We're in the boat. It's stormy. We're exhausted. We've had a bit of a day, a mountaintop experience coming straight after grief. But I find I'm often so familiar with this story that I don't pause to consider it in real time. I wonder how many of us saw the film 1917, which came out at the beginning of 2020, which feels like an awful long time ago, doesn't it? What that does is it takes a real-time view of a World War I horrific experience and is painstaking. And I particularly remember the point, if you've seen it, there's a point where somebody's um, in a river and needs to get out of the river. And in an, an ordinary film, you'd see them swimming, it would cut, and you'd see them pulling themselves up the bank. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, we're in real time, I'm going to have to watch every single stroke of this. You'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to talk for the seven hours which scholars believe would have happened between Jesus putting the disciples in the boat and then Peter and Jesus getting back into the boat at the end. But I do want us to take that slow down steps of this moment of Peter's life and imagine this experience. So let's think about the boat. It's being, this is N.T. Wright's translation, smashed around by the waves. Okay? They've been in this position trying to row against the wind and the waves for at least six hours. We know that Jesus doesn't come to them until the fourth watch of the night. That's a Roman reckoning of time, so we are somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. when Jesus comes to them. 
having put them in the boat in, by the Roman reckoning of time, the evening prior to 9 p.m. It's been a long time. And what strikes me here is it's been a very long time. Jesus has been praying for them, but not physically with them. But when he arrives, the first thing he does is not calm the storm. He comes to them in the storm. And to return to this as a picture of our lives, Jesus doesn't always calm the storm. He doesn't take away what's going on. He comes to us in it. The storm doesn't mean he isn't present. We might be in the middle of a financial crisis, problems with relationships in our families, work issues, health concerns, another wave of another variant. But none of that means we've been forsaken or deserted. Jesus walked through that storm to stand with the disciples in it. They knew he could calm it. He'd already done it in Matthew 8. But very often he doesn't. He is there present with us, just as he is right now in the storms we face. So we're in the storm. The storm is still going on. And the disciples see Jesus. I think it's very easy to forget how frightened they are, how exhausted they are, and judge them a little bit for the, oh my goodness, it's a ghost comment when clearly to us it's Jesus. But what we're going to focus on is this Peter's experience. Once he's got there, once he's realised it's Jesus, he steps out. He rallies, he checks it's Jesus, he wants to get close to him. However, if we don't pause here and do that real-time thing, it's very easy to picture this, as I think I did as a child, of Peter going, oh, look, Jesus, fantastic. Jesus, can I come to you? Yes, excellent. Step. Here we go. Walk, walk, walk. But let's, I don't think it can have been like that at all. I think we, we like to think it was Peter being impulsive, right, okay, Lord, I see you. I walk to you. Quick, quick, quick. But I wonder if you've ever been in a boat, in a gale, with the wind against you, and tried to step gracefully out of the side of it. Because that doesn't happen. Now, I'm a bit of a history geek, and I love this. This is 19, in 1986, a particularly low tide brought the waters of the Sea of Galilee down, and this boat on the left was recovered. Archaeologists state it from the time that Jesus would have been sailing on the Sea of Galilee. And the picture on the right is what they've reconstructed. For those listening, if you're on a tape, there's a picture of, of an archaeologist's recovery and a boat. And the estimated dimensions, which they can estimate pretty accurately, aren't dissimilar to a modern-day Drascombe longboat. One of these. Yes, this is a shameless plug. Um, my husband works at CYE Sailing Centre, and this is a picture of one of their boats. Now, I asked him yesterday when I was putting this together, I said, can I have a picture, please, of someone trying to get out of a longboat in a storm? And he laughed and said, don't be ridiculous. If we were taking a, a, we wouldn't be out in a storm, and B, if we were taking a picture of someone trying to get out in high wind and waves, what were we doing and why weren't we helping them? So 
I want us to take this and imagine Peter trying to then get out of this boat. He'll have to have stood up very slowly and steadied himself. This wasn't a quick decision. He may well have needed a hand or an arm from one of the other disciples to help him get up and then out of the boat. He'll have to have stood on the front or the side while the boat is doing this, going up and down in the waves, and then step down into the water, which doesn't look that, that, that tall in there, but it's about three steps on your staircase at home. So try and do that really quickly whilst jumping up and down when you get home. And you've probably got a picture of Peter's reaction here and what he was trying to do. This wasn't a quick jump. This was actually a considered step of faith. It wasn't completely impulsive. He didn't let the storm stop him. His body would have been saying, no, 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 sit back down. But he follows Jesus' come, despite the fact that the storm is raging around him. I wonder if we've ever done that. Stepped out, despite the storm put ourselves in that position? Or have we said, Lord, this is too difficult. I need to sit back down, put my head down and ride out this storm. It's too painful. I can't trust. Or have we tried and have we trusted? Because when we do, Peter's experience at this point tells us we can do the impossible with Jesus. We can walk on the water. Nothing is impossible with our eyes on Jesus. But then, this is the part we remember. And it's probably the part of our stories we remember too. He saw the wind, which obviously you can't see, but he'll have felt it. He was afraid, and he begins to sink. The problem is, the stepping out's happened. He's in the middle of the challenge. Maybe it's speaking to someone about our faith, Maybe it's continuing to be a positive colleague in the middle of a work crisis. Maybe it's holding on to our integrity when our colleagues and our boss want us to bend a rule or tell a lie. Maybe it's continuing to trust when our health or the health of someone around us is failing. But we're walking. We're doing it. And then we look down. And we notice that the storm is still there. My own experience, the cancer hasn't gone away. The longed-for child isn't coming. There's another variant of another wave of a virus that's making me scared of my friends, my family, and my workplace. It's there. It's real. And we look down, and we start to see it. And the problem is that that storm, the cancer, the issue with, with, with your family, the workplace problems, the fear, is loud. It's more powerful than we are by ourselves. It's right there. It's wind and it's waves and it's smacking us in the face. And it's grabbing our attention. And Jesus becomes that shadowy ghost-like figure that we can't quite see through the wind and the waves. And it doesn't feel like he's there. And we look at that storm, and we sink, just like Peter. They're overwhelming. Peter's in exactly the same place physically as he was when he was walking. The thing that's changed is just here, 
It's just where his attention is, where his gaze is. It's, that's what changes everything. Sends him from someone able to do the impossible with Jesus and someone sinking in a storm. But that's not the end of the story. His next experience is being rescued. So he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and caught him. And that immediately is interesting to me, because I don't believe for a second Jesus hadn't seen him sinking. The immediately doesn't come until Peter asks. He waits. And there's, there's a balance here of something that's both very empowering and very humbling for Peter and for us here. Jesus won't step in if we don't ask. We're our own people. He doesn't force that rescue. He gives us the image in Revelation of standing at the door and knocking. Peter has to call out to him. He has to admit that he can't do it alone. And I wonder how often we want to try and do it alone. The storm is there. Do we reach out? Do we call out? Do we seek out our community here? Do we ask for help or do we decide we're fine? Other people deal with these things and they're absolutely fine and I will carry on. Do we need to ask for help? And when we do, do we allow Jesus to take our arm and pull us back up? Do we allow our, our community here to be Jesus' hand at that point and to pull us back up? So finally, to come to our Hebrews passages, what lessons do we learn through stepping through this experience with Peter? Well, it's keep your eyes on Jesus, isn't it? What can we do in the storms and the doubts? We can keep our eyes on Jesus. And that's where the Hebrews passage that Tabitha read to us comes in. Here we are. We fix our eyes on Jesus. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? If it was that simple, Peter, the disciple who had the physical Jesus standing in front of him, wouldn't have looked down. We're in good company if we find, just fix your eyes on Jesus, much more difficult than it actually sounds. It's much easier to look at the storm. The storm is loud, it's there, and it's wet. But I want to draw two practical points from this Hebrews passage of the ways that we can do this. So firstly, ah, that's not highlighted. That's going to be very difficult to see. I'm going to go back to, can I, that one. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, this first part. Now, the verb that's used here in the Greek means choosing to look deliberately at something despite rival attractions. All summed up in our one word, fix your eyes. But choosing to look despite the rival attractions. Now, since September, I've been doing some work with our um, special educational needs department in school. And I've done a lot of work um, with students who have particular trouble with their attention, with their focus, and strategies to help them refocus. They need to acknowledge that they are distracted, is their first step. They need to know what it is they're trying to focus on, and they need to be given some strategies and some support for refocusing. And I think we're very similar. We need to own there are distractions. Know what the storm is, know what the other things 
taking our eyes off Jesus are. Speak them. Remove them if we can, but know that we're choosing to focus on something different. We need a clear idea of what we're focusing on, not some ghostly figure through the waves, but a clear idea of of Jesus. Remind ourselves who we're following, what he's like, and consider his life. Then we need help. We need each other for gentle reminders. We need to be amazed again by who he is. We need to worship. And like children, and like Peter, we need to acknowledge we're going to need to repeat that cycle a lot. Secondly, we need to acknowledge it's difficult because when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we notice that he endured. This is a road marked with suffering. There was opposition. There's the cross. And we see pain, and we see suffering, and then the temptation to look away is even stronger. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, we have to accept that the route we're following requires endurance from us too. If we don't acknowledge that, we're kidding ourselves, and our faith won't stand the storms. But we will, if we acknowledge that and fix our eyes on Jesus, share that joy set before him, know his presence, and be able to keep walking. So our choice... Eyes on the storm or eyes on Jesus? As we go forward into this week and into 2022, where's our attention? Where are we looking? Jesus, the storm. Let's acknowledge the power of the storm. It will demand our attention. It is real, it is loud, it is dangerous, it is powerful. Jesus won't demand our attention. He'll wait. So we need that act of will, that decision to focus. And let's acknowledge that we will need that support. We will need each other. We will need those reminders. But it will be worth it. We can do it in his power and with his people. Let's pray together. I'd like us to do what Peter did and to call out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Just very simply, I want you to call to mind the storms that you're facing, the storms that maybe someone around you is facing. Just take a moment to call those to your mind. We will look at them for just a moment. And just over those storms, let's call out together. I'll say and then repeat if you wouldn't mind. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you and not the storms as we go into this year together. Amen.